Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Well, good morning, C4 family. Really glad that you're joining us here this morning and want to say again hello to many of you watching online, wherever you might be in the province, uh, across our country of Canada, in the States or around the world. We're glad that you're here with us today. As Pastor Dave just said, we're about to get into hearing God's Word. And so if you've got a Bible this morning, physically or virtually, we'd love you to turn back to the book of Ruth, that ancient book we're spending our summer in. And we're going to still be in chapter 1 today. So for you online and you here, if you could do that, that would be great. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to do a major reno in your home, if you own one or rent one. Uh, If if you have, you know those are interesting experiences, to say the least. But uh, when you reno a place, especially a kitchen, one of the first conversations that comes up is, what countertop are you going to choose? We live in a world where there are a thousand varieties of human-made and then I'd say God-made experiences that you can put in your kitchen. But one of the most sought-after ones, you see this, of course, on TV all the time, is granite. People uh, want granite. They love granite. When people look through homes, they're always saying, well, does it have granite? Now, I don't know if you've had the experience of buying granite before. Uh, Some of us have. And if you go and you're sort of in a big box store, you see a little piece about that big and you're supposed to make your decision, right? But if you've had the chance to really do it, You actually go to a huge warehouse, and you see massive slabs of granite, and you get the chance to walk down through these warehouses to these humongous pieces of hewn rock, and and you see the color and the texture and the veining, and the amazing thing about granite is it comes in so many colors and styles. God, I suppose, is an artist at his heart, so this is what we get. And as we're walking through, we, we get to do this. And then if you've done this before, you know, you, you finally, you hope you get to do this, at least without fighting with your partner or whoever else is with you, uh, is you come to a decision and you say, out of all this granite, I choose that piece. That piece. And then what happens? Well, they say, okay, and then they begin a very difficult process that none of us see. They begin to buff it and cut it because they are preparing it for your kitchen or your bathroom. And so they begin to chip away and buff and cut and they take this beautiful piece of granite and they prepare it and then they bring it to your house and you pray a prayer you've never prayed before. Oh God, oh God, let it fit, right? Yeah, right. And they come in and they place it in your kitchen. And that 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 granite that's thousands and thousands of years old that you yourself have chosen now comes and it serves purpose now. It is a place where you prepare food, where you argue over it, where you talk, where you laugh. It becomes a place in the house that is significant. That image that we take so for granted as we live in the first world is a profound image of the Christian journey. God walks into our life and out of all the granite and all the colors and all the background says, I choose you. And not only do I choose you, he says, I have created you and I have chosen you for great purpose. And you will find your greatest joy when I give you that purpose. But to get from the choosing to the purpose, you have to go through this middle period called buffing. Many people like to preach, preach, a lot of preachers preach messages about being chosen and called and elected and loved. And lots of people love preaching about what your purpose is and what God wants you to do. But very few people spend the time in the in-between. But show me the in-between because it's in the in-between you see the real work of God. And so the book of Ruth 
which is a foreshadow of what it means to become a Christian in the coming of Jesus, is the living in the in-between. The great God that we've sung to calls his nation and even calls this family. And as we've already learned, there is great purpose that's going to come out of this family. Not only will Ruth become the great-great-grandmother of David, but out of David's line, Jesus, our Savior, will come. But before we get to the grand purpose of that, and as we know the calling is sure, we have to live in the middle to see the hard work of God in this family's life and in ours. Do you remember last week, if you were with us? We started at the beginning of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. It begins with these simple words, in the time of the judges. That 400-year period between the death of Joshua and the coming of King Saul, a 400-year period of ethnic cleansing, tribal warfare, a time where other nations invaded, another time and time again where the people of God that knew him so personally and even had the Ten Commandments continually had affairs on the living God and married people they weren't supposed to and did sexual things they were called not to and worshipped other gods. And God would raise up these judges like Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Ehud and others, and they would come and the people would rally to God and then they would, the king would die or the judge would die, that is, and they'd, they'd prostitute themselves again. It is in that time that Ruth lives. Like we found out last week, during that period, a famine comes in the land and the whole book of Judges narrows down in Ruth to one family. A husband makes the hard decision to leave because of the famine, his name Elimelech. He takes his wife Naomi and two sons, Kilion and Malion, and they go to Moab. We read that like we found out last week and we thought it was nothing, but it's so significant. These are the people that when they left Egypt would not give them bread and water. These are their ancient cousins. These are the people that hired one of the top sorcerers in the ancient world to curse them and obliterate them supernaturally. These are the people for 18 years that invaded Israel and made them all all slaves. And these are the children of Kamosh, that demon god that desired human sacrifice, but not only human sacrifice, actually desired child sacrifice. And so this family goes into the arms of their enemies to get food and work. The story continues. They arrive, things look up. Suddenly, Elimelech dies. And yet there are two sons. Two sons marry two women, Ruth and Orpah. Things seem to be okay, and suddenly, now the two sons die. And that is where we begin our story today. The last words we read last week was Naomi had heard that the hand of God had shown back up in Israel and there was food. And so they begin the journey back from their enemy Moab to Bethlehem, now carrying two daughter-in-laws who were Moabites. And somewhere along that road, somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, the grief just becomes too much. All the memories flood back, the loss of Elimelech, both sons, The funerals are long done. The adrenaline, as we know, if you've been to a funeral, is gone. The seemingly impersonal silence is now broken. And as these three women are walking along with everything that they owned, suddenly Naomi speaks. She says this in verse 8, right to her daughter-in-laws. Go back. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. She cries out, go back. Don't you dare come with me. Please, I beg you to go back. You need to go back to your mother's house. Now, don't miss that. It should read father's house in this culture. It's a male-dominated society. So is this saying that both Ruth and Orpah's parents or fathers are dead? No. This is Naomi trying to look out for their own good in the cultural limitations of that culture. See, this is a reference to the custom of the day where mothers helped arrange marriages. 
She cries out, go back while you can. Go back not to me, but to your real mothers, not a broken mother-in-law. They can get you new husbands. They can help you produce children. They can give you stability. They can give you a new life. The words would have hung in the air. The choice or command is given. Now what would happen? Well, before they can respond, Naomi interestingly breaks out in a prayer. And don't forget this, as I say this this morning, how you pray and when you pray and what you pray reveals what you believe about prayer. You can't read into this as like a quick goodbye and God bless. There's so much more. This is a prayer of lamentation. It is a prayer based in honesty and pain, and yet amazingly, as we'll find out, it is selfless. Naomi prays these words over the only family she has left. May the Lord show kindness to both of you as you've shown to your dead and to me. That word kindness this morning, church, is one of the most important words in the whole Bible. We miss it in English. It is the word hesed in Hebrew. It means compassion, kindness, loyalty, but it means so much more. It is a a word used in marriage. It means covenantal relationship, which is never violated. So this is what she prays over her Moabite daughter-in-laws. May God, who is always faithful to his vows, who is always present, may you have this type of relationship with the true living God. This, again, remember, is prayed over the daughter-in-laws that come from Moab, those who are worshipers of that demon God. God Kamosh, who those children are sacrificed to, and she says in mercy, may the living God, may the holy God, may the true God, may the only God be kind to you, not out of duty, but out of mercy and out of undeserved love. May you know that he has acted in your life when your life changes. He says, may Hesed, she prays, may Hesed come upon you. And then she's not done. Then she prays even more. See, she goes farther. Now, the word hesed, we've read this, but we just don't catch it in English. In Lamentations 3.22, some of you know this verse. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. That phrase, great love, is the same word for kindness. It is that word hesed again. It's it's a love that is not required by duty or civil law, but springs up from the concern of the person who's acting. So Naomi is praying out these very painful thoughts. She's basically saying this, I am freeing you from any responsibility to me, though you're the only family I have left. I can't do this for you. I can only give you to the one that can. So I pray and I beg my God to do it for you, my daughters. I pray, hesed over you. I am powerless to repay you and your love and kindness. So I am turning you over to God's care. Not to the God of your people, but the God of heaven and earth. What's so stunning about this is that she presumes that God's power, her God's power, actually will cross over and be found everywhere. See, you need to understand, historically and in ancient times, people believed that their gods traveled with their people or were geographically bound. They were territorial spirits. That is the mindset. And yet she knows that the God she worships is above all principality, power, ruler, and authorities, Paul would say, for the God she worships is the true only living God. Of course, her God can meet them anywhere. Her prayer is not done. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Some of you are going, that's not a blessing at all. What are you saying? (laughs) But in this culture, it sure is. May you rest. What an interesting word. May you settle down. May you have security. 
May you have freedom from anxiety. After all this wandering, all this uncertainty and pain that we've been, we've been through as a family, may, may God give you both husbands. See, remember in this culture, widows were the most vulnerable in society. It goes like this, no men, no money. No money, no men, no protection, no inheritance. And if you are left with that, you again are left with famine. And when you are stuck with famine as a woman, then you have three terrible choices. Prostitution, begging, or death. This mother-in-law is praying deeply that her daughter-in-laws do not have to experience her own pain. As one said, Naomi's advanced age actually means death is likely for her. Also, she wants to do it at home. But she knows that these younger women have a chance through marriage to get out, to build a new, a new future out of the ruins of her past and their past. So the prayer comes to an end, and now we wait. We wonder what will happen. I mean, she has prayed, and if something does happen, then of course we know God will get all the credit. It will be a direct answer to prayer. Now, the immediate response is deeply human. It's deeply honest. Both daughters break out in weeping. It's like a torrent of loud sadness. It feels like another blow to them. This is another loss and tragedy. And this is how it reads. Then she kissed them, and they wept out loud. And then they said to her, verse 9, we will go back with you to your people. The response is genuine. It's not just cultural. No, we're going to go back. And yet she turns around as a mother-in-law and says, absolutely not. She gives another passionate plea, and she says, verse 11, return home, my daughters. Why would you even come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? There's no reason for you to come home. You are both being foolish, and by the way, it's not even your home. Moab's your home. This is nothing but tragic illusion. I I cannot do my duty. I cannot help you. See, she's hearkening back to an idea that is lost in our culture. When a husband died, another son or brother or near relative as a male was called to marry the widow, to preserve the brother's name, to keep the inheritance intact, and to protect the women. But she's saying, I have no brothers. There's no sons. And even if there was a distant relative, by the way, why in the world would he want to marry Moabite women? You're an enemy of our, of our nation. You're not a Jew. You worship false gods. And she just cries out in verse 12, return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? Girls, Get with it, she's saying. Even if I found a husband today, sexually consummated the marriage tonight, conceived tonight, which is impossible, would you wait? And by the way, I would need to have twins, and the twins would have to be boys. In other words, this is impossible, period. I'm old, I am broken, I am done. Your best chance for marriage lay in Moab, not in Bethlehem. Why would you pass up the present? Why would you pass up the good? Why would you pass up opportunity? Be, here it is, reasonable. Again, this is setting the stage for providence to break forth. Like we learned last week, the heartbeat of the book of Ruth is providence, God's act right now. For since God is the only one that can produce the impossible, then all of us, as we read this story, and they will see and recognize God's hand of intervention when the unreal becomes real. Naomi chooses to drive home her thoughts 
And she turns her words from her daughters and earth to heaven. And she points her finger right up at heaven. And she cries out like Job and Jeremiah and says, Heaven, by the way, girls, heaven has done this to me. Famine, exile, death, loss, bereavement, childless. This isn't the devil. This isn't me. God has done this. Know my daughters, verse 13. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. One person said, by holding God, Yahweh, responsible for his lo- her losses, Naomi affirms his participation in these events. Despite appearances, things are actually not out of control. If he at least is involved, Yahweh still might straighten out things. In some, her bitter complaint, don't miss this, is cloaked in faith. See, Naomi attributes nothing to chance but everything to God. In her view, there is no other force in the universe. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye. But Ruth, Ruth clung to her. So, So Orpah does what most of us would do, right? She's logical. She makes the best decision. She goes back. She's going to go back and get a new husband, back to her people, back to her God, back to what is known, what what could be lost, what is normal and familiar. And as she goes to leave, she turns around and Ruth will not move. Instead, the scriptures teach us that Ruth literally grabbed her mother-in-law. Now, this could be written off, and you could do this as foolish or an overly emotional moment, not thought through, or just trying to be nice to the mother-in-law before the real motive comes out. No, no. This is real. See, the word here, clung, is a very powerful word. It's the word sexually, cleave. In Genesis, it says, you know, when basically you're supposed to leave your mother and father and you're supposed to leave and cleave. You are supposed to leave one family to start a new family, one group to another group, and you should be bound together. Now, don't misread this. This is not some sexual exploitation between Ruth and Naomi like some people have tried to make it. Don't even go there. That's just bad scholarship. What is being said here, why the word clung is used, is because we are now beginning to see how much is at stake for Ruth. She's in the valley of decision. Moab was her home. Would she now abandon all her national and religious roots? Would she actually go to the enemy of her people? Would she choose the familiar or unfamiliar? And and who shall she give allegiance to? Kamosh or Yahweh? See, this isn't just about family. This is about faith. Then it happens. Ruth turns with the greatest of courage and the greatest of humility and utters words that have been preached and heard by billions over time. She chooses the opposite destiny of her sister-in-law. And she basically says this, stop it. Stop trying, she would cry out. No more talk, no more pressuring me, Naomi, to desert you. You have spoken and now I choose to speak and I engage all that I am. And Ruth utters these profound words. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. I'm all in. I'm not trying to have my cake and eat it too. I do not believe in this fence. I will not choose that other way. 
As one wrote, from this point forward, her family would be Israelites, not Moabites, and her God would be Yahweh. How surprising this is in view that Naomi had just bitterly indicted that same God. In any case, you cannot minimize the sacrifice or pain involved for this young woman. Whatever her motivation or knowledge of God, she is willing, catch this, to abandon her family, abandon her familiar surroundings, and all her religious traditions. She took on an uncertain future of a bitter widow in a land where no one knew her, she would enjoy few legal rights, and given the traditional Moabite-Israelite fight, she would probably experience ethnic prejudice. Simply put, everyone ready? It costs Ruth everything. She said, where I die, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. Even death would find her commitment and vow real. She would not sleep with her people. She would no longer have contact with her God. She would cut herself off from her Moabite ancestors. There is no looking back. And notice this in this verse. She invokes Yahweh's name in a vow. She knows that Yahweh's name is the covenantal name and salvation. She's learned this from her mother-in-law. And she swears an oath. By Yahweh's name, she is no longer a follower of Chemosh. She has chosen Yahweh. Her decisions both affect her life vertically and horizontally. Ruth chooses to trust in her mother-in-law's God despite the bitterness this family has seen, felt, and talked about. And Naomi has just declared, and oh, by the way, everyone, it wasn't anyone else. It wasn't fate or chance. God did this to us, just saying. I'd never thought about this, but I read one pastor this week who said these words. He said, do you ever think about this? Ruth's leap of faith outdid Abraham's by far. Ruth acted with no promise in hand. No divine blessing was pronounced with no spouses. She gave up even marrying a man to be voted to an older woman in a world dominated by men. It says in verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the story now moves from three to two. These two women, vulnerable, alone, with nothing, begin the long 50-mile walk back from Moab all the way to Bethlehem. They arrive, and interestingly, they arrive home. Naomi hasn't seen this in 10 years, and Ruth has never even seen this place before. Five miles outside of Jerusalem, they come home, and it says in verse 19, so the woman went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women in the village exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now, it's a small town. I don't know if you grew up in a small town, but if you did, you know what I'm talking about. When something not normal or new happens, everyone knows in seconds, right? You don't need Twitter or Facebook. You just need that one woman who talks, and everyone knows. Or men. Sorry, there are some men too. Don't email me. Breathe. Okay. The whole town is talking. But interesting, I learned this week, it echoes not with, I can't believe you're Naomi. It's actually excitement. In Hebrew, this is joyous. This is shouting. This is happy. This is animated. They're like, oh, no, you've come home. They're like, oh, it is so exciting to see you, Naomi. Welcome home. We never thought we'd see you again. And and by the way, where are your boys? And, 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 And where are your sons? And who's this woman with you? The whole town waits. Don't call me Naomi, she said, in front of the village. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life so very bitter. 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why would you call me Naomi? Remember, delightful, beautiful is the name. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Look around, she would say. What do you see? I've got a foreign daughter-in-law, no sons, no husbands, and no grandchildren. I left this place in famine, and I'm coming now from famine. And by the way, God did this to me. He's taken legal action against me, and I'm guilty, I suppose, and I've been punished, and I don't even know the charges. I don't even know who testified against me. I'm bitter. And let me remind you who's done this. Shaddai has done this to me. And just like Job, Naomi cries out and questions God's mysterious work in justice in the in-between of calling and purpose. Now, it's interesting because the Hebrews always use different names for God on purpose. She chooses not Yahweh here, but Shaddai, Almighty. Most of us think about Amy Grant when we hear that, if you grew up in church. Some of you are singing it. Stop it. Okay. But what does this mean? Well, Shaddai means God, the mountain one. Like the mountains themselves, Shaddai, God is seen as strong and unchanging. Shaddai reveals not only God is the one who created and maintained the whole universe, but he continues to initiate the covenant with his people. Shaddai is a name used for one who has nothing in front of him except the possible. Shaddai occurs, very interestingly, 31 times in the book of Job. It's the main name God uses for Job, and only 17 times in the rest of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. See, it is a person, one wrote, who knows the God as Shaddai, who can read the second part of the story. That even the apparent meaninglessness of earthly suffering is a pattern of providence and can be coped with if it's placed in that God's hands. And not only that, Shaddai, the one who's made himself known, and nothing is impossible, of course, he's also revealed in this passage as Yahweh, the lover of our souls, the covenant-keeping God. So Naomi returned home, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, serving or arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. They found home, and there's food. And if you know the story, much more is about to happen. For the prayer that Naomi has prayed over Ruth is actually going to be answered, and God's work is going to be worked out in the in-between. And one penned, if Naomi could only see what was going to happen, the barley field is the very place that Ruth is going to meet Boaz, her future husband. And not only that, Naomi even needs to open her eyes to Ruth. What a gift and what a blessing. And yet she, and as Ruth and her stand before the people of Bethlehem, she has cried out, the Lord has made me empty. Not so, Naomi, one wrote. For you are weary in the night of adversity that you can't even see the dawn of your rejoicing. If there's a summary to this passage, maybe it could be this. If Ruth modeled devotion and conversion, Naomi models for us utter, raw honesty. It's with those two things I think the Lord would speak to us and you online today. Listen carefully. We are called as followers of the living God in our culture in 2012, to be authentic. And part of being authentic is being honest with God, deeply honest, but we can never let our pain or our tragedies become bitterness. Listen closely, please. Just like Job and Jeremiah and those that wrote the Psalms, David and others, Naomi stands open and honest in front of the God of heaven and earth and speaks about her suffering. She is in the long line of faithful ones that question If Ruth was modeled devotion, Naomi cries out in honesty. Now we need, and we learned this last week, we cannot make the correlation that Naomi is suffering because of sin or because of Israel's sin. We just don't know. But she's very clear that God has done this. 
The memory is kept alive by her complaints before God. They are placed before God in hope that maybe God's compassion will be aroused. Here again is the call, listen closely, for all of us not to be afraid, to have an honest relationship with God, to question Him, to cry out to Him, to, here's an interesting thing you've probably never heard preached, to complain to Him, to wonder before God out loud. Real relationships are honest about tragedy. They do not avoid it. They do not run from it. They look it right in the face. And God, by the way, is big enough to hear this. As a pastor, I am asking you to be honest with God, to let that dam break, not to hold back, to be like Naomi, if it is you, and say to him in detail, why have you decided, God of heaven and earth, to make me Mara? Why? The world is desperate for authentic Christians, and authentic Christians are authentic in their great highs of joy and also in their lows of pain. That's what people need to see. And God invites us, and she gives us this profound example. Never forget, this woman literally points her finger to heaven and says, you have done this to me. But that's only step one. Honest complaint. But there must always be a second step. See, if you miss the second step, you're only left with your darkness, your bitterness, your confusion, and then you move from honest faith to almost walking away or walking away from your faith, which will lead to ruin. See, so many pastors preach on the ability to wrestle or complain before God, or others say, don't you ever do it or he'll strike you down, and both of them have it wrong. What the scriptures teach us about authentic faith is this. We are called in detail, in detail to question God, and after, hear this, after our honest cry, and after our anger is expressed, and after our grief is poured out, then you must move from, Lord, why have you done this, to now what will you do with this for your glory, freedom, so the world sees Jesus clearly. Let me say that again. After you've been authentically honest with God and poured out your grief, if this is you, then you have to come to the second step where you relinquish the tragedy, pain, the effect of sin that you've committed on yourself or others have committed on you and given them over to God because he owns all things for he is Shaddai. He even owns this stuff. And we give it back to him and say, now, Lord, what will you do with this? How will your will be brought into earth? How will you take tragedy, devastation? How will you take the results of sin and actually produce profound life again and hope? See, here's the point we need to get. We are called to be deeply honest with God, and then we are called to relinquish these things over and begin to pray for our personal freedom, for his glory, so the world sees Jesus clearly, even through tragedy. I love John Piper's response to this. I struggle sometimes with some of his views, but man, he was good on this. The problem with Naomi is she does not have the story of Joseph in her bones yet. Joseph, remember the story, was totally innocent, thrown into a foreign country. His brothers pretend to murder him and sell him as a slave. He's framed by an adulteress and put into prison because he was just good looking. He had every reason to say with Naomi, the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. But interesting, Joseph never became embittered with God. He was honest, deeply honest, but never embittered. God turned it all around for Joseph's personal good and all of Israel's. The key lesson comes from Genesis 50, 20. As for you, Joseph would say to his brothers, you meant this as evil against me, but God has meant this for good. 
Naomi has the right to believe in a sovereign, almighty God who governs the affairs of nations and families and give each in their day part pleasure and pain. But as the old Swedish hymn, she needs to open her eyes, the eyes of her heart, to the signs of his merciful purposes. Here's my challenge to you this morning. And I say it so very carefully because I realize the implications of this even in my own life. Would you be honest? Would you be honest with God in a way you never have if needed? And then in the same time over space, would you then ask God to do a new thing with what you've held on to? Would your new life verse be this? You have meant this as evil against me, but God will mean it for good. That's an amen moment. It is. Sin Struggle and tragedy are the very places where God brings forth the kingdom of God and his will on earth. You are that piece of granite. No one can take away your calling, for when God calls you, you can't even walk from him. His purposes for you are profound and real. They may not be famous or sexy, but they are profound. But the result of the powerful calling you have as a Christian and also the implications of being called is that you must go through what God does in the middle. God will use this for your good, will use this for your family's good, will use this to further his grace and kingdom if you don't try to own and use this as a place of bitterness. God's sovereignty sometimes is deeply elusive. His providence makes us wonder. But in the middle of it, what we see here is a profound act of selflessness. And in Joseph's story, a clear understanding of what happens through tragedy. We, as people of hope, need to come to the position that we are comfortable with being deeply honest with our God without fear of retribution, and in the same breath or within a space of time, then saying to him as we recover, Now, Lord, what will you do with this? Show me. Show me the profound work you want to do in this broken world through my own brokenness, through your providential work. Do you see how other-centered this is? Do you see how bizarrely otherworldly this is? And yet this is the heart. And you say, why? Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate demonstration of this. God calls us to this. There's an old prayer that maybe some of you will pray in a moment. Grant me the strength, O Lord, to reverse the valley of death's shadow that I may emerge the other side a better, more compassionate person of greater use to you as a witness and to my brother and sister as a servant. God is coming to this church and to some of you to speak to you about sovereignty, providence, pain, tragedy, sin, and then new life. If you hold on tight to all of that stuff, it will become an idol and choke out your faith. If you loosen your grip, God will take what was meant for evil and produce profound, profound good. One other thought, and then I'm done. We see in this the greater lesson, though, of commitment. The great truth is Ruth shows us what it means to really meet God, to follow God. Most, when they're invited to meet God, to follow God, we, we, we actually don't, because it violates the sensible, the reasonable, and the expected Ruth chooses to meet and follow God, and she chooses the extraordinary, the unexpected, and she's given hesed. God invites every one of us here and online to know him, to walk with him, and find ultimate purpose and value in his glory as we experience freedom in him. God has broken into our darkness and given the human family hope, forgiveness, purpose, meaning, and the promise of eternal life. The most famous verse on earth talks about this breaking in, John three sixteen. right? For God to love the world 
Yahweh, Shaddai, loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. See, the challenge for some of you who've done church for decades or years, or some of you who have no background in Jesus at all, you are being called by God to be like Ruth. See, to meet the living God, you have to give up everything. You have to leave your old country of sin. You have to leave your, old, leave your old gods and your old worldviews. You must move your allegiance from yourself, your trust in yourself, or your trust in your family, or your trust into another religion, or trust in a way you think is right living, and you have to follow Jesus. He becomes Savior and Lord. Jesus promises everything you've ever wanted, but like Ruth, who was a foreshadow of every person who would meet him, you have to truly give up your life to find life. Ruth gave up her life and would find a profoundly better life, but she counted the cost. At that, my, at that moment, Naomi told her, go back to your gods, go back to your country, go back to what's logical, count the cost. And she said, no, your people and your God, I give up everything to meet him. Jesus said the same thing. So many people preach Jesus or think of Jesus as meek and mild or some political figure, and they miss him completely. He's God of heaven and earth and flesh coming to redeem humanity, buy us back from all the garbage we've got involved. But he also preached the same thing. He said, just like Naomi said to Ruth, you must count the cost if you want to follow me. What I promise you is profound beauty, profound forgiveness, profound eternal life. I am promising you everything your heart desires, everything that you are made for as a human being. But if you embrace me, you still will have to lose everything you value because your life is full of darkness, not light. Matthew 10, 37, if anyone loves his father, this is Jesus, or his mother more than me, is not worthy of me. If anyone loves his son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. If anyone does not take up his cross and follow me, he is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He said in Luke 9, these words, someone, a man said, follow, he said to a man, follow me. And the man replied, well, let me go first bury my father. That didn't mean his father died. He said, let my father die, finish the business out, and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. The point here is this. What we see modeled in Ruth is the greatest act of stepping out to meet the living God fully. Jesus would speak so strongly about this because he wanted people to understand that if you really become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you leave your life behind. Your family, though profound, beautiful, loving, you fill in the blank, they are now secondary. His kingdom, his will, your life is now other-centered, and you look, like I said last week, into the sun, and you become the moon. It has heat and light, and you reflect him, and you find his purpose, you find your purpose in him and no other. That is the great promise of our faith, and the great offense of our faith. The question I ask you is, do you want to know him? Because if you want to know him, as you're about to see in the story of Ruth, God will move and provide great life. But Ruth had to lose her life before she found it. Some of you are sitting here today and you call yourself Christian. You've been in church for years. But let me ask you an honest question. Does this description of Ruth or what Jesus teach, reflect your life. Because if it doesn't, you should stop and ask if you really are a follower yet. And if you are a follower, 
be deeply encouraged because providence will work all things for our good. God, in these scriptures, calls us to look at the deepest places of our life. Commitment, pain, joy, relationships, and faith. But in the middle of that, do not forget as I end, and the team now comes back up, that the God who is doing this is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He is a good God who we can trust. What will you do with this call for salvation? What will you do with this call in tragedy? Let's pray about that and see what happens. Lord, very... Well, I would say this maybe to you, Lord. Ruth 1 to me is a terrible storm almost before light breaks forth. And so I pray a few things. I pray for many people here and online who are now wrestling with history, why you've allowed certain things, why there's just a thousand thoughts that begin to build at this moment. So I I pray this again, that nothing would be misunderstood, misread. If I've said anything that is not glorifying to you, I pray it would be forgotten or fall down. But I pray that across our community here at C4 and online, there would be a new sense of conversation between you and your people about history and present circumstances. And I pray that there would be a relinquishing of all sorts of stuff where God's grace and power could start showing up again. I pray this passage over many people who've experienced tragedy and pain, regret because of their own decisions and the decisions of others. I pray, God, out of Joseph's story, where it says you've meant this for evil, but God will mean it for good. I pray that this would become an experiential reality to many people in our church. I also pray for many people who are here and online who are questioning you, who don't know you, who are wondering about you, who who know that you're good, and yet this cost to give up everything to follow you so much. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd reassure them and help them to count the cost and give up their life for Jesus. We ask this in the name of the Father who controls and does all things, in the name of the Son who allows all things, the Son who shows us that God is deeply loving in the spirit that gives us the power to preserve in the middle of life and follow after the Jesus we've committed to. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to the ministry, visit our website at www.c4church.com. 